it is great to be here. Um, as mentioned earlier, uh, I am a member of uh, the daughter of this church, um, New Community Bronzeville, uh, along with my wife, and we are actually newly uh, church planting residents of that church. Um, and, but before we were members of that church, we were members of this church for many years. And so it is always exciting for us to be back. It feels like a homecoming. So thank you so much for having us. <laughs> truly, truly, thank you. So right now, um, and for the last 21 years, I have worked in corporate America. So in various jobs, various companies. Uh, and, and there is this ritual that exists within corporate America that I've become quite accustomed to. Doesn't make it any less strange, but I've gotten used to it. And it's this thing that we do. And if you work in corporate America, this might sound familiar to you. Even if you don't, I'll try and describe it so we can all kind of track together. And the way this ritual works is somebody will approach you. And usually this person is maybe your direct boss or somebody with positional authority over you. And they will come to you and say, good news, I have an opportunity for you. <laughs> now what follows those words is almost without exclusion, not good news. What, what you are often, what they are often coming to you with is, what, if they were really being real, what they, are, what they are meaning to tell you is, I literally can't find a single person to do this job of responsibility, so I'm bringing it to you. It is probably doomed to failure. It is rife with problems, here you go. And yet we do this little charade that we all just pretend and nobody calls it out where they say, yes, this is good news. Here's an opportunity for you. And, and as this happens, it has come to the, the point where, where I, I've heard this enough throughout my career that when somebody approaches me in this way, when they say, good news, I have an opportunity for you, what runs through my mind is this saying, and I apologize to, before I say this, that it's a little bit crude, but, but what runs through my mind is don't poop in my bowl and call it a Sunday. And then, I don't know how often you hear the word poop from up here, but you know. And that really is at the heart of the problem of this thing, is that you are, you are positioning, you are presenting, you are framing this thing as good news to me, when in actuality it is not good news, and especially for me, the one who is hearing and receiving it. And so you can imagine where I'm going with this, that uh, in Scripture we are told that Jesus brought the good news. Jesus proclaimed the good news. Jesus taught of the good news. And for those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, we are meant to be carriers of that message, that we are, we are now meant to be the messengers of the good news, good news people. But in order to do that, do we even, do we know precisely what we are talking about? Do we know what we mean when we say we are good news people? Do we know when we are telling others, can we describe in validity and in, in true integrity of what Jesus said, that we are saying the same thing. And, and most importantly, will that good news then be received by the people to whom we are telling it? Because if it really is from Jesus, it will. If it really is from Jesus, it will be received as good news. So it, it is a responsibility, it is an onus on us to get clear about what is that good news and how can we best tell it. So as we look to do that, we look to Scripture for answers. So in his gospel, uh, Luke opens with notes of fulfillment and God's direction. And, and actually, that's throughout the whole book. It, it is a theme that goes throughout Luke's gospel of the telling of, of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. 
And so we see that sort of carried out, in, in, and, but in some very specific ways in the first few chapters. So in chapters one through three, we see the birth of Jesus. We see Jesus' childhood and descriptions of that. Uh, we see the proclamation of John the Baptist about who Jesus is. Jesus' baptism, and then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, all leading into the beginning of the work of the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus begins his ministry in, um, outside of Judea and, and does some stuff in Capernaum, begins his ministry there, performs some miracles. And then when we get to where we're going to read from today in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has returned to Galilee. This is his boyhood home. So he has returned to continue the ministry that he is, but still in the early stages of having just started, and is, is now um, returning to Galilee to, to, to continue that ministry there. So in this passage of uh, Luke chapter 4, we're, we're going to be reading from verses 16 through 30, we see sort of what happens as Jesus returns to Nazareth. And, and what I want us to be mindful of as we read this is that um, in this story, Luke affirms that those who will receive the blessings of God are those who embrace Jesus and his ministry. So reading from Luke chapter 4, 16 through 30, you'll see, it's kind of a long passage, but you'll see it um, up on the screen. This is from the New Living Translation version, uh, but, you know, whatever version you might have. So um, I, will, I will be in reading. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself meaning do miracles here in your hometown like you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So I'm, I'm, as was mentioned earlier, I'm kicking off a new series called Good News People. And in this series, we will be looking at what it means to be good news people. What is this good news of Jesus? And, and how can we be people who carry forth that message? And as we go through the series, we will also um, be invited to repent of the ways that we have failed to live that out. Now, if we have any hope of faithfully doing that, we have to first be really clear about what it is we're talking about. So uh, what I'll be looking at today is what is the good news of Jesus? What does that mean? 
and, and how are we called to be a part of that and to live that out? So my message for us today is this. Be good news people by staying open to Jesus. Be good news people by staying open to Jesus. So we're, we're going to break that down. We're going to look at both parts of, of that statement I just said. We're going to look at what does it mean to be good news people? What is the good news and how are we good news people? And then we're going to look at how might we be good news people by staying open to Jesus. So starting first with the idea of being good news people. And by the way, so I got a cold last week. My vo- I don't know if you can tell. I can tell. My voice might be a little hoarse. Um, so I, I might have to drink a little bit more just to, just to throw that out to you so it's not distracting. All right. So in order to be good news people, we're going to look at what does the good news mean? Well, the good news is that in Jesus is the total liberation of humankind. I love how radically bold that is. Jesus is not messing around. The total liberation of all humankind. That is what Jesus is after. That is what we are after as good news people. Nothing short of that is good enough. Total liberation of all of humankind. And so, helpfully, in this passage that we just read, we see this message from Jesus' own words. In verses 18, 19, and 20, we see the announcement, and and the way that Jesus does this is by quoting from Scripture. So Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament in Isaiah 61 and 58, and announcing the fulfillment of that Scripture in in what Jesus is saying here, that this is the good news. This is the ministry, this is the work of God that is being rolled out. And so in the claims that Jesus makes here, Jesus is saying three things about himself. Jesus is saying that he is the anointed one, that he is the one that is chosen and empowered to do this good work. He is also the messenger of that work, the prophet, the one who is announcing that this is what the good work is and this is what is coming. And most controversially, and the thing that we see in the passage that people react to the most, is that Jesus is also declaring that he is the Messiah. That he is not only the one anointed to do it and that the work will roll out. He's not only the one who's announcing that it will happen, but in fact that he is the Messiah and announcing and inaugurating that that work is possible and begins today. That he comes in power, not just in knowledge, not just in information, but in the power of the ability to unleash this good work with Jesus coming. And so what is this work? What is this work that Jesus is talking about? How, how can we better understand the work that Jesus is announcing? Well, the work is the dawn of God's new age. That God's new age is starting in the announcement that Jesus is making, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. And that announcement is that salvation leads to total liberation and total restoration of all things. That in, in the salvation that Jesus brings, that we can expect that we will be totally restored and totally liberated in our relationship to God, in our relationship to one another, and to all of creation. Yeah. That is good news. Yeah. If, if we hold to that, we, who doesn't want that? If, if we can really believe, if we can really hope, if we can really buy in, if, you, if, you know, if you're skeptical, if you don't believe, that's one thing. But if, if, we, if we allow ourselves to risk, to be vulnerable, to imagine that that is possible, that is good news. 
Now, there is a way of reading these verses, though, in the announcement of, of verses 18, 19, and 20, um, I think particularly for churches like this one, churches like ours at New Community Bronzeville, which are, um, as was stated earlier from the stage, uh, sort of mindful of, centered on, focused on the idea of racial justice and racial reconciliation. And, and I'll get to where I think that fits, but there, there's a, a modern reading, if, if we are sort of, if we have that bent towards that, of reading these verses to say, well, that's all of what this is about. Like you see all these words of captivity and liberation and the, the blind seeing and the oppressed. And so you, you could read this as, well, well, these are the words of revolution. These are, the wor these are words that are meant to be um, social, political, economic revolution. That is what is being presented here. This is, this is what it is primary to what Jesus is saying is, is the sort of the coming of the kingdom of God. However, I, I think we are doing ourselves a disservice if we read it only that way. We can't put that aside, which I'm going to get to, but, but it, it is not only that. Because in, in, a, in a sort of, if we, if we look throughout the sort of whole lens of Scripture, if we look at things that Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, if we look at sort of in, in the context of Old Testament, New Testament, like, you know, all of it, <laughs> if we look at all of it, um, the, the language that Jesus is using here is, is, is through all, it's primarily, I would say, through a spiritual lens. That, that what is being talked about here is a needed answer for sin. And that that is a, a, a critical component, the component that before anything else can happen, that we, we have to have an answer for sin. We have to have an answer for how can we be redeemed before God in our sin. And so when we talk about the release from captivity, th th this, this I think can primarily be understood as forgiveness. The, the captivity of our own sin, the way that we are imprisoned by our, by our own choices, by, the own, by our own sort of sinful nature within us, and the ways that we act out of that, it is, in fact, a prison. And that, that what Jesus came to bring is freedom from that captivity, that we, in the way that that can bring shame and self-doubt, distortion of who we are, distortion of other people, that, that we have to answer that first before we can get to anything else. And, and so... Not to put too fine a point on it, but the, the, the other language of the poor, captives, blind. We see this throughout Scripture as, as being symbolic of, of, of metaphors that Jesus used and is used throughout Scripture to describe our spiritual state in sin. So we, we can't lose that. Even the ways that, that I think, for, for, again, for those of us who, who are, are passionate about, who are rooted in the idea of justice, and, and spoiler alert, that's not, not here. We're going to get to that. Um, but, but that we can't, we can't jump ahead to that, that, that we, we still, we have to take it in the order that Jesus wanted to take it, which is to say that we need to have an answer for this first. And so as, as we consider that, it is, it is worth noting, I, I, I thought this was fascinating, it is worth noting the world that Jesus himself was born into. Because I think if we examine that, we will see that many of the things that are injustices in this world, the things that... that I know there are members of this church that are passionate about, I'm passionate about, members of New Community Bronzeville are passionate about, are, are things that, that most grieve us in the world, things that are, are most unjust, the things that, that most disturb us, so that, that we most pray for and wish to see changed. So, so just to sort of frame us in the world that Jesus came into, the nation of Israel was a victim of imperialism and colonialism by the Roman Empire. Marginalized people were being exploited for the gain of the very few. 
Slavery was an institution that was protected by law. It was, a, it was a way of life. It was a part of life, and it was protected to continue in that way. And there were corrupt political and religious leaders who were selfishly looking for their own gain at the cost of other people so that they could be exploited for, again, the benefit of a very few. Now, all of those descriptions, I think we could say, are things that we see in the world today and that disturb us, that we want to see changed, that we pray to see changed, and that is good. But it is worth noting that even though Jesus came into a world that was very much mirroring some of those same things that we might see today, what we see here, Jesus' primary call here is not one of rebellion. Jesus is not calling for revolution. Any, any, he could, obviously. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is himself God. A way that he, we might imagine, this is all, we're going into hypothetical land, but a way that we can imagine is that Jesus comes to the world, he topples all the powers of injustice, he stops all the institutionalized and systematic ways that people are being exploited, he overturns every system of economic exploitation, of, of marginalization of people, of, of systematic hatred, of dehumanization. And, and we might imagine that that would be a good thing, that that is what we would imagine Jesus might do. And, and in fact, I think that is what the people, the Israelite people, were expecting. Like if a Messiah is going to come, he's going to deal with all of this, all of the things that we see us, around us that are wrong, that are bad, that we want to see change, that are costing us, that we feel the weight of in our life every day. That is what the Messiah is going to come and do. And they weren't wrong about that. But it is not where Jesus starts. And in fact, what Jesus actually came to do, rather than dismantle those systems, dismantle those powers, instead what we see Jesus do here and in, in the rest of the gospel is he submits himself to those very powers. He allows those powers to smash him, to destroy him on the cross that he dies. This is what he comes to do. And in so doing, what we see is that if he were to do the other thing, if he were to, do, if he were to have come and to dismantle all the, the evil systems that were in place, and they are evil, if he were to come to topple all the powers and the systems and the, the legacy of, of marginalization and exploitation, what that would have been an act of is an act of judgment. God would have come in judgment. Those actions are acts of judgment. It is to say, I judge these things as wrong, and I am destroying them. But instead, what God did was an act of sacrifice. This is why we can say, Jesus came not to judge the world, but to love it. He came as a sacrifice for us, not in judgment, he would have been right to come in judgment. But instead he came to the world to save it through self-sacrificial love. And, and, and that it is this way that he seeks to bring liberation. It is through paying the ransom. It is for answering the fundamental thing that is, is, is the, the thing that will stop the bridge to all of the things that we justly want to see. First, there needs to be an answer for sin. First, there needs to be a freedom from captivity of the state of sin we are in. And the only way that we can get there is through the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. This is the good news. 
That he, because if he had come to judge the world, then, then all of us would be fair to be judged as well. But it, but it is not in judgment that he came. It is to save the world in love. But in so doing, the picture that we see here, and now, now getting to the, the other part of this, is one of total liberation. The, the language here is, is kind of doing two things for us, and it is not, I don't think, by accident. Jesus chose these specific scriptures from the Old Testament to be what he would, would choose to say, what he, what he is choosing to say, this is what the work of God is. And so in the ways that I think we can get caught up in imagining, okay, there is the the work of God that's about the saving of souls and sort of our eternal ability to be with God in the future that's over here. And then there's this justice work and the stuff that we want to do sort of to see justice and and to see reconciliation over here. That's not at all how Jesus talks about that. Any way that we do that is, is not what Jesus is doing. What we see here is it's operating as one unit. We can't nor should we isolate or segment or silo these things. Rather, this is all part of the total work of Jesus. That the total work of Jesus is to bring about spiritual liberation through forgiveness of sin, and that a natural outpouring, a natural outcome of the people of God who have experienced that is to then be a part of justice and liberation coming into the world. And the way that that can happen, the way that we can imagine that, is that when we experience the forgiveness of sin in our own lives, when, when, when that has taken hold of us and that allows the Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us from the inside out, what grows in us is compassion. What grows in us is understanding. What grows in us is a true understanding of truth. What grows in us is a desire to serve. What grows in us is a, a, a stopping of otherizing and instead seeing others as the, what they truly are which is image bearers of our very God. And that kind of ability to do that, the the place from which God seeks for us to go seek after justice and liberation, the kind of compassion that is required there, the kind of truth that is required, the kind of commitment to service even when it's hard, we have no chance if we're doing that on our own. We have to have Jesus who is changing us so that we might mirror Jesus and then, but in so doing, it's not like we're just passengers for the ride. We get to partner with Jesus in that, in the way that Jesus has changed our very hearts, our very minds, our very souls. That's what we get to do. That's a get to do. That's not a have to do. That's a get to do. And so Jesus doesn't want just part of our liberation or the liberation of all people. Jesus wants the whole thing. Jesus is not okay with stopping with, okay, well, well, they have been freed from sin, so now sometime in the future they'll be okay. Or Jesus does not want just the justice. Jesus sees this as one total work of God, and this is the work that we are called to as good news people. So as we think about this, and, and I know that this is a commitment that this church has, and in some ways I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but I've heard someone say that you, sometimes you have to preach to the choir to get them to sing. That's what we're doing today, is reminding ourselves of the truth of what is here. And, and something that we, uh, uh, Pastor David Swanson, who I think you're going to hear from next week actually, um, who's the pastor of our church at New Community Bronzeville, um, something that he has brought up uh, at our church that I've heard him talk about is 
um, there will be new people who come to our church, and they will be around for um, a couple months, and you know, they'll kind of, and often, in the example I'm giving, these are people who are maybe new to uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural churches, um, often, but not always, but often coming from more white culture-centered churches, and they will come to our church, and they'll kind of take in what's happening, and, and listen, and see, and then, and at some point, they will, they will want to have a conversation with Pastor David, and what they will say to him, and I, I say this earnestly, this is not in judgment, I want to be clear about that. They, they say this earnestly. They say, you know, I think it's great that we are so passionate about the idea of racial justice and racial reconciliation. I, I think it's, it's great that we have this, this shared passion in this church for that, but, you know, what about all the other things of God? Like, what, are, what about all the other things that we could be doing within sort of the, the understanding of the work of God or God's ministry. And, and essentially they're asking is like, you know, why, why are we only focused on this issue? When are we going to move on to some other issue? And again, earnestly, this is being asked. And I think from the scripture that we see here, the answer would be when we will stop is when every heart has been changed. When we have rightly done the work of justice together to free us from the systematic sin that is a weight and encumbrance on us all. And that as we do that, that as we allow ourselves to seek after God and we earnestly ask God to change our own hearts, and that we begin to see our brothers and sisters truly as what they are and rather than the ways that we have been systematically programmed from our world to see them. As we begin to put those things down and then raise up injustice together, shared for one another, so that one day we will arm in arm be able to sing in unity, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It is at that time that we will say we have done faithfully what God has called us to here. And until that time, we are not meant to put this down. This is the call. This is the work of God. This is the good news. This is who we are called to be. As a side note, if a newcomer asked me that, I wouldn't say all that. <laughs> but, but you get the idea. <laughs> and so th this is why, as was said earlier, this is part of your mission. It is a shared part of the mission that we have carried. You know, we, New Community Brownsville planted out of this church. So this part of the mission we continue to maintain. You all have. I think it's a shared DNA of our churches. This is what we mean when we, are, when we say we are reconciled to be reconcilers. What we are confessing, what we are proclaiming, what we are reminding ourselves of is that we have been reconciled miraculously by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus. That we might actually be reconciled to a God that we have no business asking that of him, but he has given to us freely as a gift. And that in being reconciled, what God has called us to is to act as forces of reconciliation within our churches, within the communities around us, within greater Chicago, and on and on and on. This is who we are meant to be. This is the mission that we have. And this was not planned, but I think Jesus, you know, doing Jesus thing. What was said earlier, I wrote it down, that community engagement ministry that y'all are starting, that, that's it, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> is, is I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that or something else in this church or in, in your life. Because this is the mission that we are called to. We are, we are meant to be committed to it. And it is hard. It is hard work. 
It is harder than if you were to only stay within sort of a certain lane of, or stay with people that sort of most, most look like you or think like you. It is hard to work for this kind of work, but we cannot give it up if we are meant to be good news people. We can't. We, we're, not. we're not. We're not being good news people if we don't do what it says here. And so we are, we, we are to be good news people, and that the way that we do that is by staying open to Jesus. So what do I mean by that, and how do we do that? Well, we'll, we'll look at the rest of this passage to, for our answers, but just to say the way that we stay open to Jesus is by questioning our own privilege. The way that we can stay open to Jesus is by questioning our own privilege. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at what that means. So in verses 22 through 30, kind of the second half of this passage, um, we see the reactions of, of human hearts to the message of Jesus and, and the trappings that are, that are at risk for us. And, and I, I want to say there's a way of, you know, I, I think anytime you read a passage like this and you're like, okay, the people who are rejecting Jesus and like, ha ha, silly people and, and us, and we know the end of the story. So like any instances like this, where like, there's a conflict between Jesus and people, we're like, well, you know, Jesus was right. The people are wrong. But I think it is helpful for us to examine and to admit to ourselves in reality that we can be just like the people, the, the trappings, the things that can trip us, trip these people up, can trip us up too. It can be our reaction to something that is bold and radical as the message of Jesus. So I just want to frame us in, in that idea as we sort of look at this. And so, so what we do see here is that there are very specific ways that these people who are receiving the words of Jesus are, are closed to the message. They are closed to the message of what Jesus has to say. And, and so want to examine, well, how could that happen to them? And therefore, how could that happen to us? So in, in verse 22, this is where they say, like, isn't this, um, isn't this the guy that we already know? Like, is, isn't this uh, the guy that we grew up with? Isn't this the guy from Galilee? What, what they're really saying is, like, this guy? Like, we know this guy. This guy, this guy grew up with us. We know his people. We, we saw him do stupid things when he was a kid. We know this guy. It can't be this guy. And what they're really saying is, in my view, if there's going to be somebody who's going to come in power, it's going to, it's going to look a certain way. There, there is an expectation to say, if the Messiah comes, it will be with a certain amount of authority. It will be with a certain amount of positional power. It will be a certain amount of influence or fame or wealth. That there, it, will, it will look the way that I would expect because that, if this person is this powerful, it, it must be that. And so what they're really revealing is an is a understanding of this is how the world works. And of course, we are in a world where we are just as, as ripe for that trapping. That in, in church, we, we do our best with the help of Jesus to sort of fight against that and to fight against the idea of sort of positional authority and influence and, and power and it needing to look a certain way. Although in church, we can easily get trapped by that too. But, it, but certainly in all the other parts of our world um, where, where you might work, hierarchy of power, politics, the, 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 you know, especially in, I think, the U.S., our fascination with fame and what we, what we take fame to mean, like, you, you, you know, wealth, 
certain people who are wealthy, I'm not gonna get into all the names, but certain people who are wealthy, and we imagine, oh, they must be geniuses. And even when they do something clearly wrong, we're like, oh yeah, they, they, they're, they're doing 3D chess. They meant to do that. It, it, is, it is this understanding that is though, it is these things, it is this encumbrance that is where power will come from, that is where change can come from, that is what leaders will come from. And it, 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 can, it can shape how we understand the world to work. And, and in fact, I would say it's almost impossible for us, every one of us, including me, to not be shaped by that. And, and for every one of us to play into that system and take advantage of it. That, that for in the places where you all operate, you sort of assess, this is the way things get done, this is the way influence happens, this, is, this seems to be, these are the people of influence, I need to get in good with them. It's in some it's human nature, it's natural. But, but that this is an element of bias, that this is an element of us, if we were to think in this way, the, the stronger we are rooted in that understanding, the more the radicalness of the way that Jesus works, we will maybe just unintentionally black off or imagine, well, that can't be right. And then we see further in verse 23, um, where this is the part where they say, uh, you know, physician, heal yourself. That's great that you did that stuff in Capernaum, but this is what matters. You need to do it here. This is a, a sort of regional bias or, uh, or jealousy. And I think we can relate to that as well, that we can say, okay, I can read about something or hear about something that's happening over there, but, but what, what feels most important to me, where I will most believe it, where I have the most credibility for me, where I will most buy in, is if you do it for me. Are you doing it in my world? Are you doing it in my community? Do I see it? Do I feel it? Do I get the benefit of it? And so, so this is another bias that we see presented in, in these verses. And then maybe most critically is in verses 25 and 26, and this is where things really ramp up and we go from sort of what I might call genuine curiosity to now we are getting to murderous anger that is produced in the people that are listening. And, and the thing that really sets them off is the idea of, who gets to receive God's blessings? And so their whole worldview, their whole construction is influenced by the things that we just named. The idea of um, it, it comes from looking a certain way and that that is the way that sort of privilege comes and that it is sort of most immediately felt by me and that that's the thing that I'm in this for, that's the thing that I'm looking for. And then what, what Jesus really disrupts is when he says, you know, you, you might assume that it is your proximity in appearances to being close to God that will lead to your blessing. And you might assume that it is because you have a certain status or you have a certain sort of relationship to religion or relationship to the idea of the church, that that, that is where blessing will come to you. But in actuality, what we see in, in Jesus' example is that it is, it is the foreigners. It is folks that are marginalized. It is people that, certainly the people that we read in these verses, but I think you and I are just as susceptible to this, the people that we don't see. The people that we, again, not, I don't, well, I don't know, I don't know you all, but like, I, I don't think any one of us is intentionally dehumanizing anybody, but in the system, in the world that we live in, it is so easy to dehumanize others. It is so easy to, to see somebody as different or to see their concern as their concern and not my concern because it's not affecting me. 
It's so easy to pass the person to say, well, that person may be in need, but I've got my life over here, so I can't be really worried about that. It is, it is easy for our hearts to grow cold. And in fact, what Jesus is saying is that the people who will be the receivers of God's blessing are in fact those that know their own need and are open to the message of God. That's the lane that we need to stay in. That's the, the commitment that we need to find. And that directly in opposition to the ability to do that, directly in opposition to the ability to stay open to Jesus, to be open-hearted, to know our own need, is our own privilege. And so this statement should be chilling, not in a like, be scared way, but in a sobering way for all of us. Unintentionally, I think in most cases, our privilege can cause us to reject Jesus. Our privilege can cause us to reject Jesus. The ways that we unknowingly, subconsciously buy into the way the world is ordered, the privileges of the world, the ways that we play into it, the way that we even enjoy the advantages of where you are in a privileged position, it is those very things that may blind you to what Jesus is calling us to. It is those very things that may blind you and keep you from the blessings of Jesus. And so we, we are to take this seriously. And so privilege, as I'm, I'm defining it here, is any advantage that is enjoyed by a certain group of people and not to others. And so be, because this is true, because this is so important for us, not to be afraid of, but to be intentional about, I want to be clear, it's not, it is, it, this is another place where we cannot do this by ourselves, we need Jesus' help. But it, it, is, it is right and good for us to be intentional about the ways that we enjoy privilege. Which, by the way, is everybody in here. And, and so there are many dimensions of privilege. Privilege might be race. Privilege might be gender. Privilege might be socioeconomic status. Education level. The positions that you find yourself in occupationally. Being able-bodied. All of these things are privileges that can blind you to what those who do not share that privilege don't experience. And so it is right and good for us to question that. To question that in our own lives and, and question, where do I enjoy privileges? Do I understand the privilege that I'm enjoying? Do I understand the ways that that plays out for me and, and plays out differently for those that don't have it? Are there ways that Jesus might be inviting me to use my privilege on behalf of those that don't have it? These are questions and, and things that we, we, can, we can ask Jesus and, and question for ourselves and start to invite. And it's a, I think it's a needed hygiene for us to be able to stay open to Jesus. And, and one suggestion I might make there is, is that for you to ask the people in your life who are different than you. Ask them about the ways that they experience something that would be different than yourself in, in whatever vector of privilege we're talking about. And when I say that, I mean like actually go ask, like actually go have a conversation with them and say, hey, I'm wondering how you experience X, Y, Z. And it, it's important to do that from a relationship base and not, you know, don't treat people like projects, but to form relationships. It is part of the, the benefit and the richness of being part of a multi-ethnic, multicultural church like this one. If, if we are only coming here to sort of sit in the pews next to one another, we are limiting what God has called us into. We are meant to press in. 
And, and one of those dimensions of pressing in is to examine our own privilege, which by the way, we're all gonna fail at if we just do self-diagnosis. Fail. <laughs> fail, hard fail. <laughs> You, you need the people sitting next to you. You need the brothers and sisters next to you. And, and what's rich from that is we get to experience increased intimacy, increased relationship, increased movement towards the unity of God in that. It changes us, but it allows us to be a changed people of God as well. And so I, I think that Jesus invites us all to do that. So as, as I, I go to close, we, we are called to be good news people the good news that only Jesus can bring, that we are reconciled to God through the self-sacrificial love of Jesus who saved us by paying the ransom for our sin. And that because that is done, that we can expect that the Holy Spirit will come into our hearts and change us. Change us and allow us to become people who grow in compassion, in service, in ability to care for others. And that through that will unleash liberation and restoration and reconciliation for the entire world. And when I think of this, I know that this can get overwhelming for me, that this can get hard to imagine. When we see all the things around us that are unjust, all the things that seem to not be changing or changing too slowly for our liking, it can feel like this is, I don't understand how this can work. I don't understand how this can be. Where, where, what role am I supposed to play? And, and it is, I think, for that reason that it is so important for us to be anchored in what we see here. That this work comes first from Jesus. Jesus alone who can save. Jesus alone who can change hearts. And through the changing of hearts, Jesus alone who can topple the systems of exploitation and oppression and marginalization that we see so commonly around us. And so I want to close with a quote from the theologian, Dr. Emilio Antonio Nunez. And he says this, the transformation of this world in a reign of justice and peace for all human beings will not be the work of man, but of God. The gospel is the message of hope, the hope in Christ, not in man. Let it be, let it be, let it be. Amen. Will you please join me in prayer as we close?